Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green Podcast. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I'm a student at Colorado State University studying soil and crop sciences. And my name is Levi. I'm also a student here at Colorado State University, graduating in May, Woo! and also studying soil and crop science. In this podcast, we'll explore climate change topics ranging from soil microbiology to complex ecological systems. And if you have no idea what either of those are, don't worry, we'll explain any heavy concepts. We're not experts either, but we want to use this platform to share what's happening in climate change research right now. We think it's important to expand access to this education, so we will bring the science to you. Our time at CSU has afforded us the privilege of studying under some really great professors who have opened our eyes to some very cool concepts and ideas in soils, ecology, agroecosystems, climate change, and more. Today we'll be talking about agroecology, some macrofauna, the ecology of soil, and how to best manage our agricultural resources. Stephen Fonte is an assistant professor of agricultural systems science. He earned his PhD in 2010 from the University of California, Davis, with a focus in agricultural ecology. He also holds a Master of Science degree in Forest Ecology from Oregon State University and a Bachelor of Science in Environmental and Resource Science from UC Davis. Dr. Fonte's work takes an ecological approach towards understanding multiple functions and drivers within agroecosystems and then seeks to apply this knowledge towards the sustainable management of soils and farming systems worldwide. This work is done largely in collaboration with farmers and other stakeholders across a range of agricultural contexts. So Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. First of all, can you just tell us a bit about how you got into the research and the work that you've been doing? I know I had a little bit of a break from the academia world after, I can't remember if it was it after your master's or your doctorate? After undergrad, really. Ah, yes. Yeah. And, and a little bit after master's as well. Okay. So, so did we. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're old. So going through my undergraduate degree was, you know, became really interested in just natural sciences and ecology in general. And then that, together with taking some time off and traveling, really got me exposed to different things out there in the world and, you know, working with some smallholder farmers and different environmental and social economic issues, you know, around the world, especially in Latin America at the time. So I went in and studied really ecology and I spent early part of my degree, really, I'm trained as an ecologist and I spent the first part of my education, you know, studying tropical rainforests and not really thinking about the applied side of agriculture. But as I went along through that training, I realized that agriculture occupies the majority of sort of our terrestrial habitats on this planet and is really where we have the most leverage to really improve management and improve environmental outcomes at a global scale. And then that combined with meeting a lot of these smallholder farmers around the world really led me to feel uh, that that was my mission was, you know, helping provide food security and livelihoods for farmers, as well as a whole range of environmental outcomes. Where were you located in South America and what were you doing there? So I've had a couple of different stints in Latin America. After finishing my, my undergraduate degree, I went and spent some time in Ecuador and traveled down through Peru and Bolivia and Chile and stuff through the Andes. And that's really where I learned Spanish that opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And that allowed me to go and actually do my master's degree, which was the rainforest in Puerto Rico. I just where, went to Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> where I, I spent a, a year there. And I guess I got interested in sort of the ecology side of thing. But then I had known a lot of farmers in my travels before. I did some volunteer work in Ecuador. 
in a small agricultural community. Then through my PhD work, I knew that I wanted to keep continue with that type of work, but more in an agricultural setting. So I spent the better part of a year in Honduras, in very rural Honduras. And then after finishing my PhD, I lived for three years in Cali, Colombia, working with at the International Center of Tropical Agriculture. As a part of his ongoing work, Fonte and his collaborators have conducted local surveys of farmers in several Andean regions of Peru to understand their most pressing agrarian needs. One of the top issues was that fields were being farmed more and more intensively. What used to be roughly a nine-year crop rotation was being accelerated to less than six years by reducing fallow time to fewer than three years. This intensification was leading to poorer soil health and land degradation. At the same time, there was also less forage available to feed local livestock. The longer natural follows had previously provided more forage. So in collaboration with Fonte and his colleagues, local farmers helped develop a set of experiments that would investigate putting those remaining fallow years to be more productive. The group decided to try planting 58 experimental fallow fields with more productive and improved fallows based on crops such as alfalfa, oats, ryegrass, and clover that could be used for animal forage as well as restoring nutrients to the soil. They then observed these fields for three years, measuring crop outcomes, soil health, and forage production. The farmers ultimately selected an alfalfa-based cover crop as the best, according to research published this September in Agricultural Ecosystems and Environment by Fonte and his colleagues. In a subsequent study, Steve and his collaborators worked with local farmers to see how the plants at the edge of a typical potato field which are usually less than an acre, were impacting the crops. They compared 20 fields, 10 bordered by alder trees, and 10 bordered by eucalyptus. As described in an August paper, also published in Agricultural Ecosystems and Environment, they found that alder borders provided a unique ecosystem benefit, including better soil quality, soil biodiversity, and improved control of common pests. The results indicated that more intentional organization of the landscape could go a long way toward enhancing the provision of multiple ecosystem services to benefit key crops. I seem to remember uh, reading a paper of yours that was based around there. <laughs> I think it might have been a silver pasture system. Yeah, I worked in a number of different civil pastoral systems when I was in Colombia, both in Central America as well as in Colombia. So civil pastoral systems are where you basically combine trees and grazing or you know animals. And those trees can be for just purely shade or wind protection, but they can also be for wood or food production or forage for the animals. And so, yeah, we were looking at what are the impacts of the civil pastoral systems versus more traditional management without trees on you know, how they help improve soils and a bunch of different you know, productivity and environmental outcomes. What are the biggest issues facing small share farmers in South America? There's a number of issues faced by smallholder farmers around the world. So I work in South America, but I also work with a lot of smallholder farmers in, in East Africa. So, I mean, obviously they're smallholders. They have a very limited amount of land that they're farming. That land is often not the best farmland. They've been kind of relegated to that land or, you know, they've inherited over many generations. So often it's degraded. It also tends to be in a lot of places I work tends to be on more mountainous landscapes and because of that, you have more issues of erosion. It's also a lot more heterogeneous. So you may have like a fertile part of soil on one part of the farm, and then just a little ways over, it's unfarmable. The farmers really have to learn their land really well. 
And obviously there's a lack of resources that they have to be able to purchase fertilizers or whatever sort of agrochemical or other types of inputs. Smallholders, I remember, had certain management practices that they had either been told were really good or they had just been doing it because it was handed down. So like a cultural thing. Could you maybe go into some of those, like the slash and burn and why they were maybe not the best for the particular landscape that you're in? Like you said, they were mountainous and more prone to erosion. So a lot of my... PhD work was focused on these agroforestry systems in Central America, mainly in Honduras and then later in uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua. And traditionally it was slash and burn agriculture. That's what the Mayans were doing for thousands of years. We know that for every one to three years you farm a piece of land, you need to let it lay fallow for 15 years to recover. In that time, trees and vegetation can grow back there while you slash and burn another area to plant in. But what if you don't let the land lay fallow long enough to replenish itself? The Maya are often depicted as people who lived in complete harmony with their environment. But like many other cultures before and after them, they ended up deforesting and destroying their landscape in efforts to survive in hard times. A major drought occurred about the time the Maya began to disappear. And at the time of their collapse, the Maya had cut down most of the trees across large swaths of the land to clear fields for growing corn to feed their growing population. Sound familiar? Computer climate models showed researchers that the loss of trees could have caused a 3 to 5 degree rise in temperature and a 20 to 30 percent decrease in rainfall. Of course, no single factor brings a civilization to its knees, but the deforestation that helped bring in drought could easily have exacerbated other problems such as civil unrest, war, starvation, and disease. Anyway, back to how Dr. Fonte is helping these communities be more resilient. And at a low density, is, it's a sustainable practice, right? As long as you're not trying to farm too often. The idea there is you basically farm the land for a couple of years and then abandon it and it regrows to forest and the soil gets restored. And as long as you give enough time, that works out well. As population pressures increase and farmers need to get more out of the small amount of land that they have, they can't afford to leave that land for 20 years and they leave it for five or 10 years. And that doesn't work so well. So that was leading to lots of issues in, in Central America and within the region and really promoted by, by other organizations, they found some, some really nice agroforestry systems. One was this Kisangual agroforestry system where they thin the native forest and then keep pruning those trees back. So there's no planting that needs to happen. And that helps a lot with adoption because there's not a lot of work that goes into it. Tanya agroforestry is a system of forest management in which land is cleared and planted initially for food crops. It was originally coined in Burma in the late 1800s. This can be done in a variety of ways. However, most systems use seedlings of a desirable timber species that are planted on the same plot of land, either in combination with food crops or following several years of cultivation. After three to four years, the tree canopy closes, preventing any further agricultural use, and the land is solely used for the timber crop until the cycle is repeated following harvest of the timber, which is different than the traditional slash-and-burn practices many cultures utilize. So the trees integrated into the agricultural systems provided another income perhaps for them and also stabilized the land against erosion. Right, so the trees provide... I mean, the ones they cut down entirely are to build their houses or whatnot, but then they provide a regular source of firewood and fence posts and all sorts of resources continually over the years. But they also provide shade while they're working and, and a number of different things. But then they're pruning back these trees regularly and the litter inputs or the leaf inputs are deposited on the soil. And those provide a really rich source of nutrients and protection from the soil as mulch. 
on that note, I remember a study that we looked at that had these hot spots of macrofauna like earthworms and things like that. And they seem to be really focused on these areas where the leaf litter and, and like the slash had been dropped. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important for the system? Right. So some of my work has looked at how the slash and burn versus agroforestry compares in terms of soil macrofauna in general. And I focus on earthworms you mentioned. And basically where you are depositing all of these leaf prunings from the, the trees, you're providing food and shelter for earthworms and it's helping retain moisture in the soils. And so, yeah, you do get these pockets of biological activity, largely earthworms, even more than in the native forest that we compared next to it. And some of the other benefits for those earthworms is to the soil itself, correct? So yeah, the earthworms yeah, are an indicator of, of sort of biological health of the soil, but they are also helping the soil in a lot of different ways, making tunnels that, that allow for faster water infiltration. And that leads to reduced erosion and runoffs leading to floods, things like that. So earthworms are really helping control the overall water dynamics and nutrient dynamics and the overall sustainability of, of those soils. So what happens to our macrofauna after a fire? Because obviously we know that fire is becoming a greater issue, especially in the West here in Colorado. Does fire affect things like earthworms and what happens with them after a fire? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, again, it depends on the intensity of the fire and how deep the impacts are in the soil. Soils have a lot of water and they're pretty well insulated. And so I don't think fires often immediately kill, at least like the slash and burn systems that I worked in in Honduras, they don't immediately kill all the macrofauna, but then what they do is they consume all of the food and then they also take away the shade. So then those soils become a lot more you know, fluctuating in terms of temperature and moisture and there's no food and it's just a much less hospitable environment. Gotta feed those soils. <laughs> Gotta feed the soils. Mm -hmm. It's a living system. In a study titled Recovery of Soil Macrofauna After Wildfires in Boreal Forests, researchers found burning reduced the taxonomic diversity of the soil macrofauna. Surface-dwelling groups like Aphidina, Coquina, and Pseudoscorpiones almost disappeared from the burnt plots during the first two years after burning. A population decline was shown in soil-living animals after burning was expected because fire destroys the preferred part of the soil habitat for most soil organisms, i.e. the litter and uppermost humus layers, or if the fire is very severe, the entire humus layer. Soil animals which move slowly often have no ability to escape fire. Arthropods, like beetles and spiders, can survive fire by burrowing, flying, or getting away from the fire by moving quickly, as Steve mentions. Deep living larvae survive the fire better than surface living animals. In addition, a number of good nutrient dispersers occurred early after the fire. Reduced predation pressure probably facilitated their colonization. Besides dispersal ability, a good colonizer must have the ability to successfully settle the disturbed area. The post-fire vegetation developed rapidly, and the assemblages of soil macrofauna became numerically dominated by plant-sucking insects like aphids, cicada, delidae, and thripses which often have lower numbers in natural forests, but have high numbers in my houseplants. <laughs> so we've talked about earthworms, but what other macrofauna are out there that people might not really know about? Yeah, well, when we talk about macrofauna, just to be clear, we're, we're generally talking about organisms that are you know, larger than two millimeters or things you can see with the naked eye without a microscope. Earthworms are probably the most famous, as you suggested, and, and often they're tend to be the highest biomass, or at least macrofauna organism. 
And that's why they get a little more notoriety. But in a lot of soils, especially in drier areas where there are fewer earthworms, ants and termites can be incredibly abundant and very important ecosystem engineers is the term we use for earthworms in terms of their tunneling through the soil, they're creating aggregates in the soil, they're you know changing water flow and changing habitats for other organisms. So a little bit of termite information. There are roughly 3,000 species of termites around the world. They form one of the major groups of invertebrate, which ingest a mixture of organic material. They move and mix large quantities of soil from different horizons during their mound building. Hence, they contribute significantly and often play an important role in ecosystem processes, including soil formation and soil conditioning. Termite mounds are actually conspicuous features in paddy fields in Laos and Cambodia. Their soil is used as an agricultural amendment because it is enriched in organic matter and clay, while its animal and plant diversity are used by the population as a source of food and medicine. Also, termite mounds are revered and decorated in southern India. Their praise and offerings to the termite mounds show their devotion to their god, Shiva. So generally, termites create microhabitats favorable to the development and sustenance of symbiont microorganisms, providing them with optimum security from predators. They also minimize fluctuations of wetting and drying cycles. Therefore, termites significantly influence and regulate the structure of soil bacterial and fungal communities, for instance, with fungus-growing termite species. Yes, termites invented agriculture way before we did. They garden fungi. In order to sustain a 20 million year symbiosis with the fungus, in which fungi provide digestible food to termites, fungus-growing termites must optimize living conditions of the fungus for it to thrive. To do so, they build a biogenic structure maintaining a constant humidity of 80% and a temperature of 30 degrees Celsius in any kind of environment all year long. Crazy. Also, mounds and other structures built by termites that are enriched in this soil organic matter contribute to litter decomposition in tropical and subtropical areas, which is significantly higher than that of the grazing mammalian herbivores in that area. Additionally, in the Chihuahuan Desert, removal of subterranean termites caused a complete disappearance of a dominant perennial grass and decreased productivity of the dominant shrubs. This just shows the importance of termites in these ecosystem stability. Who knew? Probably, Probably Steve. Steve. So those are all ones that we call ecosystem engineers, but there's also a whole range of other soil organisms that have a whole, you know, a bunch of different functions. You know, there's centipedes and spiders, which are predators in the soil and can be important agents of biocontrol. There's also, you know, millipedes and, and earthworms to some extent, which are really, you know, feed on organic matter and help recycle nutrients in the soil a lot. There's all sorts of different, you know, diversity of beetles. Yeah, there's a whole range of, you know, insects essentially, and, and some other things, but largely insects. And most of them are really important in eating organic matter or the organisms that ate that organic matter and recycling nutrients and making them available for plants again. I wanted to actually touch on that because our last episode, you know, was with Kelly and uh, we talked about the microbes role in nutrient cycling. So I remember doing some research on this where it was kind of very hard to distinguish who was the driver there. Was it the microbes, you know, driving the nutrient cycling and making these nutrients available to plants or to other organisms? Or was it the macrofauna or was it the trees? It's just kind of an interesting question. I wanted to make clarification here that microbes make nutrients available to plants, 
but plants themselves might be driving the microbial community composition through their root exudates. So the roots of the plants will exude these certain chemicals that attract microbes, and it's been posited that they are kind of driving that community. Macrofauna also do a similar thing. They also leave some compounds in the soil, like the earthworms, as you'll see in this episode. And of course, the critters that feed on the microbes will also influence their community composition as well. Yeah, no, that is a a very good question. And I think you can think of the macrofauna as working together with microbes and and kind of a symbiosis or synergistic effects, where macrofauna are really facilitators of decomposition and nutrient recycling. They're moving around organic matter and moving it into soils to places where it's going to decompose more quickly. And they're really speeding up that process a lot. So really, they're working hand in hand with the microbes to recycle those nutrients and make them available to plants. Through their poop. Through their poop. (laughs) (laughs) Poop is a favorite topic so far on this podcast. It's a good one. (laughs) Slowly becoming the poop cast. (laughs) If you want to learn more about poop, specifically fecal microbiome transplants, check out our first episode with microbiologist Kelly Wrighton. What is something that surprised you during your time researching agroecosystems? That's a good one. I mean, I think there's been a couple of different ones. I mean, in general, like when I first started working in the Andes in Peru, I was surprised that there were farming systems, you know, at 13,000 feet where they're growing potatoes. And that kind of blew me away because 13,000 feet in Colorado is a snow-covered peak most of the year, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Is it not there? Not there. Yeah, you may get a l- occasional snow, but no, That's it's generally warm enough to grow cool season crops. But maybe a more extreme example, when I first started working in El Salvador, really, you know, after working in Honduras, you know, El Salvador was sort of ravaged by civil war, like throughout the 90s. And I got to know some farmers there and quickly learned as they were showing us around their farms, you know, where they hid when the government would come after them. You know, they had bunkers that they hid weeks in. Oh, wow. And they were all over this this landscape we were working in. And a lot of the farmers I started, when I looked closely, were well armed, Mm. (laughs) you know, as as carryover from their time as sort of being rebels during the Civil War. Everybody and their mums is packing around there. Like who? Farmers. Who else? Farmers' mums. And uh, yeah, that was just really interesting to think about you know, all the things that they'd gone through, you know, not just being a smallholder farmer, but then having to defend their land. Politically, economically. Yeah. I felt embarrassingly ignorant about this topic, so I decided to look into this civil war further. So geographically, El Salvador is the smallest country in Central America, but it is also the most densely populated, with a population of over 6 million people in a country the size of the state of Massachusetts. El Salvador has been notorious in recent years for the high levels of murder and violence in its capital city, San Salvador. El Salvador's civil war has its roots in the conflict in La Matanaza, or the massacre, of 1932, when the military regime of General Martinez repressed a rebellion led by indigenous peasants and communists. Half of the Communist Party was killed or exiled in the aftermath, while tens of thousands of indigenous people were murdered. While El Salvador is a unique case study with its specific context, the descent into civil war fits into a larger Central American framework in which the United States funded and trained ethically abhorrent military regimes in order to combat communist insurgents. When the Reagan administration assumed power and took an extremely hardline stance against communists in Central America, the U.S. increased military aid to a repressive El Salvador regime that ordered and carried out devastating human rights abuses throughout the 1980s, such as executing a thousand unarmed peasants in El Mazoto. 
In an unexpectedly successful campaign, the guerrillas used hit-and-run attacks to capture and consolidate control over one-third of El Salvador's territory. The U.S. increased aid in the form of air support that forced the government to go on the run again. A stalemate ensued in which the government could not penetrate further into government territory, while the military could not dislodge the guerrillas from the regions they controlled. The government then responded to this offense with panic and murdered six Jesuit priests, drawing heavy international criticism and devastating the military's image. With no clear end in sight and the Cold War now at an end, both sides sat down for a peace agreement. This war was particularly violent and citizens of El Salvador are still struggling to sustain peace in their country to this day. Did your love for travel come first or did your love for science come first? That is a good question. I think my love of science came first, mm. but then was just perpetuated even more. And, you know, my curiosities, you know, I saw all the different types of ecosystems out there that just really sparked it even more. And oh, so yeah. they, they fed off of each other. Very cool. I know that some of these other small holder systems, they also have very different cultural connotations around them as well. Whereas here, it's typically sterile. It's you know, using huge machinery. That's It's not like a community affair, whereas there it seems more like, well, in, in other countries in general, and definitely smallholder systems seems more like it's a community effort. I think, I mean, obviously we're talking about different scales of farming, especially here in Colorado. Many farmers are farming hundreds or even thousands of, of acres. Can't do that by hand. Can't do that by hand. I might push back a little bit on, you know, saying that it's sterile. Yes, there's more agrochemical use, but there are a lot of farmers out here that are doing practices no-till or cover crops that are, are really supporting the soils in a lot of ways. And I would say that they're very much integrated as a community and asking each other how to farm and making decisions, you know, how they want to manage their land. Maybe the amount of people on a particular area is less, but I think there's a lot of parallels actually in the farmers I work with here in the States versus smallholders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, food is necessary. And so I think it brings a lot of people together. And especially if there's an issue or a problem, the community works together to try to solve those. And that's kind of another role as a researcher here at CSU. You work with a lot of farmers here and kind of give best management practice advice. Is that true? I don't work so much directly in extension where I would be in that role of providing specific recommendations, but I do work a lot with farmers and, and I have participated in a number of different types of workshops and conferences, talking more about general principles where my research is going. But then a lot of my research, both abroad as well as in Colorado, is you know working together with the farmers. They come to me and they say, hey, we'd be really interested to look at what the effects of cover crops are, for example. I have a number of projects on cover crops in Colorado, but we don't know all what to measure and we don't want to deal with that part. We just will try the farming and you measure what you need to measure to see if it's actually having an improvement or not on my soils. On that note, I was thinking about organic systems and how one of the thing that really surprised me was that they're not necessarily all they're cracked up to be in terms of soil health because there's a lot of tilling involved to keep the weeds under control. I just thought that was really fascinating that there's something that seems like it's so helpful and, and such a good system that's kind of got like a little bit of a dark side to it. Right. I'm probably, you know, biased by my macrofauna lens <laughs> and yeah, macrofauna are obviously very disturbed by tillage, or at least some groups like earthworms are, 
They don't do very well when they're chopped up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they don't actually grow into two separate worms like really? a lot of people think. <laughs> I really thought that. My mind that was going to be my next question. <laughs> don't they just become another worm? <laughs> the, the, the front half of the worm, if you have enough of it, you leave enough of its gut intact, will can survive. Oh, poor earthy worms. <laughs> but I think just because it's organic doesn't mean it's sustainable. I think a lot of organic systems you know, have a lot to offer in the sense that a lot of pesticides do cause damage to the, the life in soils. And... There are no-till organic systems as well. I mean, they're being developed maybe more <clears throat> in the East Coast, but there's a lot of exploration of that or reduced-till systems, which benefit the soil in many ways and have fairly you know, robust macrofauna communities. What so, are they doing to keep those weeds and everything under control? I think often it's maybe less intensive surface tillage and more strategic timing of that tillage, you know, when those organisms might be deeper in the soil. And then there's a balance too. By, by providing sufficient food, in a sense, you're feeding the soil organisms and the macrofauna, and they're able to rebound faster from disturbances. So as long as you're not disturbing them too much, I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a, a nice balance that we need to find there. And I think there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And so by providing an adequate amount of food, you're talking about like leaving residues in place and planting cover crops, things like that. And applying compost yeah. and manure like a lot of organic systems do. Yeah. Feed the soil. <laughs> <laughs> it's hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I think the organic label is great. I think maybe it just needs to be updated to include more regenerative, maybe I think is the new keyword there, practices like leaving cover crops or, or crimping. Do you have any recommendations? Like what are the top management practices? If you had to choose just one to implement, what do you think has the biggest effect on our macrofauna? We'll, we'll leave it at that since that's kind of your specialty. Yeah, that's, that's tough a tough questions. one. That's a very <laughs> tough question. And I think it's certain practices, but have a result in a combination of different factors, right? So I think no-till is potentially really important, or at least reduced tillage. But the problem there is a lot of no-till implies, at least in this part of the world, implies that there is going to be some herbicide usage. Mm. And so, yeah, it's hard to know what's the right lesser of two evils for one way to say it, right? Is yeah. it Tillage or is it the herbicide, right? I mean, how and bad is the herbicide really? Come on, I had a little bit on my toast. <laughs> we don't know, right? And right. so there, there's questions there. And so, yeah, I think if, especially if you have no-till, you know, not only is not chopping up those macrofauna, but it's leaving a nice residue covering on the soil, which is helping modulate soil temperatures and moisture. And so I think at least around here, that's probably one of the more important practices. Yeah, absolutely. It's so dry here. At the same time, I'll just add in. So like where I work in Peru, a lot of the tillage is actually hand tillage, you know, with like special sort of traditional implement there. And they basically flip over big clods of soil. And that tillage, well, it's very thorough. Like it completely exposes the soil. It's, it's not actually breaking up all the structure and the organisms living in there to the same extent. So there, I mean, that's, I guess, form of reduced tillage. Yeah, because don't they basically just flip over a giant clod, put in their potato and then put it back. Right. And then they add a bunch of manure as well with it. And Lovely. So, yeah. so there it's not a no-till system, but they have very healthy soils. Yeah. Some of the highest earthworm abundances I've seen in the world. Awesome. I'm curious if the farmers that you worked with in Latin America actually showed you a new method of farming that you had not seen before. Well, I think most of the farming methods that I've observed are ones that I hadn't seen before. I wasn't completely aware of. And I think, you know, yeah, I definitely became aware of different strategies or different considerations that they're having to deal with. You know, like we often think, for example, about 
contour farming or farming along the contour so you reduce the amount of erosion that happens in a soil. But where I work in Peru, for example, they actually do the opposite. They farm straight up and down a hillside in a lot of places because there's too much moisture at certain times of year and they want, they want to make sure the water runs off. Interesting. Yeah, that so blew my we don't mind. have that problem in Colorado, <laughs> but in some places, I mean, yeah, maybe there's a better way to do it, but I was really surprised that that's the way that worked the best for them. Yeah, and they've tried sense. it, you know, obviously, because when they didn't do that and they tried to, you know, someone came along and told them they should be, you know, using along the contour, then they had all sorts of disease and, you know, potato wilt or whatever on there. Right. Too much wow. moisture yeah. too much and moisture. rot, I'm sure. What are you researching currently? I'm working on a lot of different things right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm very much, uh, I, I've kept my sort of ecologist badge and, you know, try to understand the whole system. So I'm working on lots of different things. But my general theme of my work is trying to understand the multifunctionality of agricultural systems. So obviously, I'm measuring yield and profit that's coming off a system because that's really determining the, whether a practice is viable or not. I just wanted to define yield real quick for those that might not know. Basically, it's just the amount of produce or whatever it is that you're growing for a crop. It usually is measured in you know pounds per acre or something like that. But beyond that, we're focusing on a whole range of things like carbon sequestration. You know, there's a lot of talk about that, even another potential source of income there. But then also erosion control pest control, maintenance of biodiversity, which is a lot of people, you know, feel that that has its own inherent value that we need to, to be thinking about. And so there's a whole range of services provided by agri-ecosystems that we should be, you know, considering as performance metrics, whereas a lot of the world just focuses on yield and profit. And while that is probably the most important one to consider, because without that, the system wouldn't exist, we really should be thinking about all these other ones. And in some cases, like with carbon sequestration, there's been a lot of talk about subsidizing that. And, right. you know, there are examples of farmers or communities subsidizing other services related to water regulation, water flow regulation, and things like that. I'm just curious, how would they measure the amount of carbon sequestered in those systems to get those incentives? I think a lot of it comes from experiments that are done on farm and at research stations where they're able to test a certain practice out for you know, 10, 20 years, and they're able to say either comparing baseline versus 20 years later or comparing you know the standard practice versus the alternative carbon storing practice and being able to say that like, oh, this practice stores so many more tons of carbon per, per acre. How do they get the money to those people? <laughs> Somebody just write a check for them? <laughs> <laughs> so there are some different voluntary programs that like companies will pay into, like big company, say McDonald's or something will say like, oh, we want to be carbon neutral. One way is to invest in alternative energy sources. Another way is to invest in places that are planting trees and forests. But then soil carbon is a little trickier. It's a little harder to measure, as you were asking. But we are getting better through experimentation and through modeling exercises as well mm. of having a good idea of how much you can actually store. And so through that, those companies invest or, or show their investment in global warming mitigation. Our invested money can make their way down to farmers. But it's not well established in the U.S. It's perhaps further along in Europe. Do you think there's such a thing as like net zero emissions from agriculture? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, you have to think about not just the fluxes coming in and out of the soil of, of say, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. I think we can definitely have soils that are net zero or, or even you know net sequestering. But then with agriculture, you have to think sort of more of a life cycle analysis approach where you think about the fuel that's used by the tractors right, transportation. and the energy that goes into producing fertilizers and 
So when you bring all that into account, then you have to have a soil at least that is potentially sequestering a lot of carbon or really reducing nitrous oxide emissions to account for all that. So I think it's possible, but it's... It's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> hard to achieve. Sure. I mean, people need food. So agriculture is always going to be a part of our society as a globe. So how can we make it most efficient and maybe less wasteful <laughs> and more resilient? That's kind of what we're all working on, essentially. That's the million dollar question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's why we're here. Well, I was going to say I came into college here with some preconceived notions like inorganic fertilizer bad. But the more I've looked into it, I'm like, well, in and of itself, is it that bad if you need to like use it to amend some soil or to restore an area? Maybe it's necessary in some cases. But I think what I've come to learn is that it's more the overuse of these inorganic fertilizers is the real problem. So how would we go about ag in the future if we were trying to like reduce that? I mean, what would it look like? If we're trying to reduce inputs. What's your utopian yeah. agricultural system? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the technological answer is precision ag, right? Mm. Where we are better able to evaluate soil and plant needs per meter basis and apply the exact amount there so that we're not over applying in some places and under applying in others. But I think in general, there's a lot of things that we can do by under, better understanding the turnover of, of different organic sources of nutrients that are in the soil, whether it be from soil organic matter or residues. And then if we understood that better, we would have a better sense of how much fertilizer we need to apply to really meet plant demands without exceeding it too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, without putting on so much that it runs off. I mean, because once you put it on right away, not all of it's available. Some of it runs off, some of it volatilizes and goes into the air as gas. So there's a lot of loss pathways that are introduced immediately. There's a lot of loss pathways and, and they all become exponentially problematic when you apply more fertilizer than a plant needs. Mm -hmm. I just want to give a quick explanation of volatilization for those who might not know. It's essentially when you put a chemical on the ground, an organic fertilizer, especially in a liquid form, water will evaporate. It will also change chemically and turn into a gas and then leave the system that way. So that's one example of a lost pathway. Another is erosion from water or wind, and certain chemicals are lost in ways that others are not. Like phosphorus doesn't typically go wind-bound, but more is, is runoff through erosion, like water erosion, or leaches out, which means that it goes through the soil and into the water table or something like that. Can you define precision ag for maybe some people listening who don't know? Generally, the idea with precision ag, and we usually think of it as tractors that have either modeled soil fertility previously, or they have a sensor on them that correlated something with, say, nitrogen availability. And as they're driving over a particular field, they're able to be monitoring the plant color, for example, to know the nitrogen content or, or demand of that plant. And as they're doing that, they can specially you know, change the rate of fertilizer they're applying higher or lower, depending on, on the plant's needs. And that's typically, we think of precision agriculture as you know fertilizer application. It can also be seeding rate that changes with, say, moisture availability, or, or it can even be water application in some cases. Some examples of the newest technologies emerging in precision ag include cloud-controlled, fully autonomous tractors, real-time mobile device analytics, remote monitored and controlled irrigation systems, wireless sensors that detect water availability, soil fertility, leaf temperatures, local climate data, and insect infestation, as well as disease and weed pressure. But we usually think of it as this very technological thing where you have to buy a half million dollar tractor in order to apply it. But really, I think a lot of what I work with smaller farmers in the developing world is you know, I mentioned they have very heterogeneous farms where one field's really fertile and then the next field's very poor. 
And so we're looking at ways to help them measure those fields and to better target their management practices on a per field or even subfield basis. And in a sense, that's, you know, that's precision agriculture. It's just at a different scale and a lot less technologically advanced. Farmers but, code too. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I'm in Dr. Ham's class right now. I don't know if you work with him at all, but he's talked quite a bit about making all of these weather sensors and things that can give you data, just like Steve's talking about here, looking at the leaf color even and saying, well, but it needs more nitrogen or whatever. And some of these devices are relatively inexpensive. They'll sell for a couple hundred bucks, but he's like, oh yeah, you can just go get this on eBay or Amazon and make it for yourself for like $30. <laughs> that sounds amazing when you get this info out there. Open source. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of potential there. So that's cool. exciting to see. Farming is coming to terms with the technological advancements. Yeah, really. <laughs> we'll try to share some of these plans for any techie farmers out there looking for weather sensors and crop management tools as well. And hopefully we can get Dr. Ham on the show as well. So to back out of this farming conversation that we're going through, I want to know what's your favorite part of your job? Well, that's a good question. I think I have a couple favorite parts. So I like my job. It's, it's, it's a good job. It's a lot of work. I wish I did a little less, but I generally like all that I do. But I think my favorite part is interacting with students, particularly seeing my grad students and undergraduate students <laughs> grow and develop and learn and gain new skills. And for me, that's really rewarding and exciting just to see them and to get to know these people. I also enjoy traveling and getting to see new places and talk with farmers around the world and understand different cultures. Haven't been doing so much of that in the last few years with COVID, but hope to be doing it soon. <laughs> and I think just thinking about new questions, ecological questions or that apply to agriculture, to soils, and ways that we can tease apart you know, different principles so that we can better manage our soils. And so I think that's a really fun part of my job. Maybe I don't get to do that as much as I would like to. Yeah, I think probably the most valuable thing that I got out of going back to school was just the networking and talking to experts in their field and learning from them. And it's interesting because there's not so much of like a divide in expertise because everyone has their own expertise. Being in secondary education is more like having a conversation and then having similar passions and curiosities and cool things form out of that, like this podcast or, <laughs> you know, farming modeling. It's kind of like a place where brains come together and it's not so much about the grades. <laughs> no, not at My all. My high school teachers were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say what's on the horizon for ag systems. Like how are we moving towards reducing climate impact, but improving production efficiency? Well, let me pull out my crystal ball <laughs> and I'll tell you exactly how we're going to figure all that out. No, I mean, that's a really complex question and yeah. there's obviously no silver bullet there or we would have figured it out already, hopefully. Yeah. So I think... I think maybe we touched on some of it with precision ag and, you know, reducing inputs and things like that. And really making sure that all the research that we're doing at universities, that we are constantly consulting with the actual practitioners, the farmers that are doing it, you know, make sure we're studying relevant things that can actually be applied and will actually impact their lives and can allow them to farm better. So, Speaking of, uh, could you maybe go into a little detail about uh, one of the projects that you're working on in your lab right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I know you you're working to, uh, on one uh, that I had helped with a little bit, dealing with cover crops in dryland agriculture. So these are agricultural systems where they don't use irrigation. And this is mostly in southwest Colorado, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's a cool project where I was actually continued it on from someone else that retired before me. But it was really cool in the sense that Farmers down in Southwest Colorado actually 
went to the Southwest Colorado Research Center at the time and said, you know, we're having a lot of problems with soil degradation. Our soils are blowing away because it's a very dry area. It's fairly high elevation. It's like six, 7,000 feet. And they were desperate for solutions. And they had you know, heard about cover crops. But again, you know, it's a big risk to try cover crops. There's, there's a lot of trade-offs there potentially. So they went to researchers there at CSU and basically said, we want to study this, but we can't afford to take that risk. Can you work with us to apply for some funding? So this is funding through the USDA program of Western SARE, so okay. Sustainable Agriculture Research Education part of USDA. And so we together, you know, with their support, applied for funding from the Western SARE and were able to conduct research both at the research center where we were able to look at a lot more different factors like interactions of different types of cover crops and tillage and everything. But as well, we also tried it on all of these farmers' fields and set up experiments in their fields where we tried more simple mixture of cover crops versus not you know, what they were doing traditionally to look at the impacts on yields and soil properties and allow them to make better decisions in the future. To see like, well, maybe I lose a little yield, but if it's improving my soil and in the long run, I might be better off, then it could be worthwhile. And that's, yeah. Yeah. So that type of research is really cool in the sense that it's really farmer driven. What cover um, crop did best in the dry land system? I'm really curious. Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> So we tried a bunch of different mixtures. So it wasn't any one particular cover crop. And they tried a bunch of different ones in early years. Yeah, and it depends every year, right? Like some years they grew really well if there was moisture. And some years the cover crops hardly grew at all. Sure. So yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. I heard that some legumes, some beans do well in those kind of arid systems. And maybe some sorghum, right? So sorghum's often grown as you know for grain or for forage in the systems. It is grown in some places as a cover crop. I think I haven't seen it so much around in Colorado. And obviously farmers are really interested in growing legumes because they're fixing nitrogen, and, right. which is our most limiting nutrient for plant growth. Sure. But legumes are hard. The seeds tend to be pretty large mm-hmm. and it's expensive to plant them at high densities and to actually oh. get a good stand of legumes. Interesting. And so really the and the species that actually tend to do better are a lot of different types of grasses. There'd be oats or triticale or, you know, a bunch of different things. Sure. Is that because they were like historically what grew out here was mostly just grasses? I mean, there were certainly some native legumes as well. But yeah, I think my guess is that grasses in general are faster growing and not, not always, but right. and have a more prolific root system, a fibrous root system that's able to access water better. Yeah. So grasses typically do a lot better, but they don't fix nitrogen. And so it's always a balance of providing enough of this expensive legume seed that it's able to compete with the grasses a bit and get some of that benefit. Hmm. I didn't realize uh, legumes were so cost prohibitive. Again, it depends on it, but on which legume we're talking about. But yeah, yeah. you think yeah. most of them, you know, like winter pea or whatever, and they have fairly large seeds. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Do you have any interesting macrofauna facts that you can give us? Levi might have some ideas after taking my soil <laughs> ecology class. <laughs> And nematodes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if they really count as macrofauna. They're not macrofauna, oh, but, yeah. you know, I, I dabble in nematodes a little bit. Who doesn't? Um, who doesn't? Literally <laughs> everyone. <laughs> okay, well, since I've been focusing on earthworms a lot, I might as well just go with it. We love earthworms so, here. the longest or the largest earthworm in the world yeah. is in Australia. Some of them have been measured over 11 feet long. No. It's true. I've seen it's pictures. <laughs> oh, They're my monsters. God. Where else? There's actually quite a few... Not really well identified species, as far as I know, of earthworms, just a little bit lower elevation of where I work in the Andes. And I've come across one before and I've seen pictures where earthworms are 
almost as big around as like my wrist and they're maybe Crazy. three to four feet long. I had no idea. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. I want one. I want, I want one. one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Those are kind of fun facts. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That is exactly what I was looking for. Okay. So of course I had to look this one up. So the earthworm that Steve is referring to is called the Gippsland earthworm. This now protected species is found in parts of Victoria, Australia. They have relatively long lifespans for invertebrates and could take five years to reach maturity. They breed in the warmer months and produce egg capsules. When these worms hatch in 12 months, they are around 20 centimeters or 7.9 inches long at birth. Unlike most earthworms, which deposit castings on the surface, these guys spend almost all their time in burrows. They are usually very sluggish, and when they move rapidly through their burrows, it can cause an audible gurgling or sucking sound, which allows them to be detected above ground. Yes, you can search this noise on YouTube. Gippsland earthworm colonies are small and isolated, and the species' low reproductive rates and slow maturation make those small populations very vulnerable, especially with increasing agricultural practices in the area. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in learning more about these topics? So I think that depends on the person. If you're if you're a farmer, if you're a student, you know, a college student, or you got to love the ecologist or, response. Yes, <laughs> it, it depends. depends. <laughs> that's, the, that's the response for every question for yeah. an ecologist, right? I mean, if you're a student here on campus, for example, I would say find a lab or a professor that's doing something interesting, or you know, that you know has interesting projects going on, and start working with them. You can often learn sort of through osmosis by working with professors or students, but then often there's other opportunities to go to lab meetings and, and things like that. So I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, get involved. If you are a college student, go join clubs, go talk to your professors. That's what this experience is all about. And remember, websites like Wikipedia and ThoughtCo are great starting points, but <laughs> sometimes that's not always the best way to go. <laughs> And I would encourage a lot of students here at CSU, and especially those that are interested in agriculture, but maybe don't have a lot of experience in it, but, you know, are passionate. I'm raising my to, hand in the studio to, right now. <laughs> <laughs> to go and get some real on-farm experience and, and oh, try yeah. to do an internship with farmers or volunteer somewhere or, or something. Because I feel like there you get taken away from our idealistic view of, of what, what's going on. At, yeah, totally. Find out what the real problems and, are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Figure out what's really driving their decisions. And I think that's kind of the premise for this podcast is like you might have an interest in agriculture or doing environmental research, food systems, but it's such a multifaceted discipline that no matter what you're interested in, I think that there's a spot for you. So um, absolutely. I mean, I'd come from a non-ag background at all. Grew up in the suburbs of Florida and here I am studying this stuff, <laughs> getting as much exposure as I can wherever I can. I worked in Steve's lab for a short time, and that was hugely beneficial, a really nice experience. And I guess I'd just say the same as Alyssa. <laughs> Find what you're nerdy about. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for coming in and talking to us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we learned a lot about earthworms, and I'm going to provide more information on those if I can find any. <laughs> Speaking of poop. <laughs> yeah, more poop stuff. Earthworms <laughs> have the best poop. <laughs> yeah, my, my pleasure to come in and share about uh, all the critters in the soil and you know how we can better manage our systems to benefit them and all the great things they do for our farms and, and food production. Exactly. Let's work together. Indeed. We're a part of the system. Well, thank you so much, Steve. We appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Until next time, folks. <laughs> <laughs>